Well, amen. Amen. Tonight, uh, tonight we finished the book of Joshua. We will have completed uh, somewhere between 36 and 40 hours of uh, instruction on Joshua. I think it's going to pave the way for us to go into uh, writings, which will be Ruth. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. There are cars pulling up outside even now, uh, so I'm sure as soon as we get into the thick of it, the door will open and close an inordinate number of times. Uh, Before we pray and uh, read chapter 23 and 24, uh, we're going to do some review tonight. We're not going to review each chapter. Uh, We're going to review its placement, Joshua's placement (laughs) in the Tanakh. And then three sections of Joshua. Now, some of this you've heard, but after 40 hours of teaching, I think you can probably hear it again. And uh, it helps make the point for why Joshua closes the book the way that Joshua does. And uh, I'm excited. As always, there's a few things uh, in here that are new that are just, um, they're too good to recount. So, uh, why don't we pray, uh, invite the presence of the Lord into what has already been a victorious day, and let's uh, let's finish well. Amen. Amen. Who wants to pray? JJ, that's very good. You, you, uh, you lead us in prayer. Love you. We're so thankful, God, to be in your presence, God, with your people. God, we ask, Lord, that you would change our minds, God, change our hearts, God. Write your law upon our hearts, God. God, that you would put it upon our minds, God. God, that it would change us, God. God, we ask, Lord, that you speak to us, God, something fresh and new. Remind us, God, of the old treasures that are stored up, and Lord, you give us new treasures tonight. God, not just to attain knowledge, but Lord, to be able to put it into practice, God, God, that it would change our lives, God, that it would change the people around us, our family, our friends, that it would change this world. We love you, and we thank you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, Jennifer, uh, kick us off in chapter 23, and let's go through the end of the book. After a long time had passed, and the Lord had given Israel rest from all their enemies around them, Joshua by then, old and well advanced in years, summoned all Israel's, Israel, their elders, leaders, judges, and officials, and said to them, I am old and well advanced in years. You yourselves have seen everything the Lord your God has done to all of these nations for your sake. It was the Lord your God who fought for you. Remember how I allotted an inheritance for your tribes, all the lands and the nations that remain, the nations I conquered between the Jordan and the Great Sea in the west? The Lord your God himself will drive them out of your way. He will push them out before you, and you will take possession of their land, as the Lord your God promised you. Be very strong. Be careful to obey all that is written in the book of the law of Moses, without turning aside to the right or to the left. Do not associate these nations that remain among you. Do not invoke the name of their gods or swear by them. You must not serve them or bow down to them. But you are to hold fast to the Lord your God as you have until now. 
The Lord has driven out before you great and powerful nations. To this day, no one has been able to withstand you. One of, your routes, one of you routes a thousand, because the Lord your God fights for you, just as he promised. So be very careful to love the Lord your God. But if you turn away and ally yourselves with the survivors of these nations that remain among you, and if you intermarry with them and associate with them, then you may be sure that the Lord your God will no longer drive out these nations before you. Instead, they will become snares and traps for you, whips on your back and thorns in your eyes, until you perish from this good land which the Lord your God has given you. Now I am about to go the way of all the earth. You know with all your heart and soul that no one of no not one of all the good promises the Lord your God gave you has failed. Every promise has been fulfilled. Not I'm sorry. Every promise has been fulfilled, not one has failed. But just as every good promise of the Lord your God has come true, so the Lord will bring on you all the evil he has threatened until he has destroyed you from this good land he has given you. If you violate the covenant of the Lord your God, which he commanded you, and go and serve other gods and bow down to them, the Lord's anger will burn against you, and you will quickly perish from the good land he has given you. Then Joshua assembled all the tribes of Israel at Shechem. He summoned the elders, leaders, judges, and officials of Israel, and they presented themselves before God. Joshua said to all the people, This is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says. Long ago your forefathers, including Terah, the father of Abraham, and Nahor, lived beyond the river and worshipped other gods. But I took your father Abraham from the land beyond the river and led him throughout Canaan and gave him many descendants. I gave him Isaac, and to Isaac I gave Jacob and Esau. I assigned the hill country of Seir to Esau, but Jacob and his sons went down to Egypt. Then I sent Moses and Aaron, and I afflicted the Egyptians by what I did there, and I brought you out. When I brought your fathers out of Egypt, you came to the sea, and the Egyptians pursued them with chariots and horsemen as far as the Red Sea. And they cried to the Lord for help, and he put darkness between you and the Egyptians. He brought the sea over them and covered them. You saw with your own eyes what I did to the Egyptians. Then you lived in the desert for a long time. I brought you to the land of the Amorites who lived east of the Jordan. They fought against you, but I gave them into your hands. I destroyed them from before you, and you took possession of their land. When Balak, Balak son of Zippor, the king of Moab, prepared to fight against Israel, he sent for Balaam, son of Beor, to put a curse on you. But I would not listen to Balaam, so he blessed you again and again, and I delivered you out of his hand. Then you crossed the Jordan and came to Jericho. The citizens of Jericho fought against you, as did also the Amorites, Perizzites, Canaanites, Hittites, and Girgashites, Hivites, and Jebusites. But I gave them into your hands. I sent the hornet ahead of you, which drove them out before you, also the two Amorite kings. You did not do it with your own sword and bow, so I gave you a land on which you did not toil and cities you did not build and you live in them and eat from their vineyards and olive groves that you did not plant now fear the lord and serve him with all faithfulness throw away the gods of your forefathers worshiped beyond the river and in the egypt and serve the lord but if serving the lord seems undesirable to you then choose for yourself this day whom you will serve whether the gods of your forefathers served beyond the river or the gods of the amorites in whose land you were living 
But as for me and my household, we will serve the Lord. Amen. Then the people answered, Far it be from us to forsake the Lord, to serve other gods. It was the Lord our God himself who brought us up, brought us and our fathers up out of Egypt from that land of slavery and performed these great signs before our eyes. He protected us on our entire journey and among all the nations through which we traveled. And the Lord drove out before us all the nations, including the Amorites, who live in the land. We too will serve the Lord because he is our God. Joshua said to the people, You are not able to serve the Lord. He is a holy God. He is a jealous God. He will not forgive your rebellion and your sins. If you forsake the Lord and serve foreign gods, he will turn and bring disaster on you and make an end of you after he has been good to you. But the people said to Joshua, No, we will serve the Lord. Then Joshua said, You are a witness against yourselves that you have chosen to serve the Lord. Yes, we are witnesses, they replied. Now then, said Joshua, throw away the foreign gods that are among you and yield your hearts to the Lord, the God of Israel. And the people said to Joshua, we will serve the Lord, our God, and obey him. On that day, Joshua made a covenant for the people, and there at Shechem he drew up for them decrees and laws. And Joshua recorded these things in the book of the law of God. Then he took a large stone and set it up under the oak near the holy place of the Lord. See, he said to all of his people, this stone will be a witness against us. It has heard all the words the Lord has said to us. It will be a witness against you if you are untrue to your God. Then Joshua sent the people away, each to his own inheritance. After these things, Joshua, son of Nun, and the servant of the Lord, the servant of the Lord, died at the age of 110. And they buried him in the land of his inheritance at Timnah Sarah. In the hill country of Ephraim, north of Mount Gaash, uh, Israel served the Lord throughout the lifetime of Joshua and of the elders, who outlived him and who had experienced everything the Lord had done for Israel. And Joseph's bones, which the Israelites had brought up from Egypt, were buried at Shechem in the, in the track of land that Jacob bought for a hundred pieces of silver from the sons of Hamor, the father of Shechem. This became the inheritance of Joseph's descendants. And Eleazar, son of Aaron, died and was buried at Gibeah, which he had been allotted to his son Phineas in the hill country of Ephraim. There's a lot to cover tonight, amen? Amen. <laughs> so, uh, let me give you uh, a couple random thoughts that uh, we're not going to cover in detail. Uh, you can place them among your own study. You notice Terah was an idolater. Did you hear that? He doesn't. uh, The people of Israel are not known as the descendants of Terah. Who are they known as? Abraham. Abraham. Abraham's offspring. Uh, This alone says that when the Lord uh, reveals Himself to a man and that man is transformed, it redefines your lineage forever. Okay, that that in itself is the best news you could possibly hear. for those of you that come from an Acts 2 class, they would like to make an argument from silence that Amram must have been a man of God. Uh, look at uh, Abraham and Terah and tell me, uh, sometimes the apple does fall very far from the tree. And there are a few of us in here that should jump up and down and shout for amen with that. Amen. Second, you may have noticed uh, Esau gets his land before Jacob does. 
the people of God always uh, come into their inheritance after suffering. The people of this world always get their best now. Their worst comes later. We take our worst now for our best later. Consider that in light of Pastor Colgate's book. I mean, that, that in itself. There's 430 years that separate Esau getting his land from Jacob getting theirs to, at a bare minimum. I mean, that's incredible, isn't it? Yes. And there was slavery and deliverance involved in Jacob receiving his land. Esau was uh, a slave to his flesh from the time he was young to the time he died, and so were his descendants. So there was no struggle. Does that make sense? Yes. Okay. We're not going to go into the three groupings of gods here, but if you listen carefully, there are the gods of Egypt, there are the gods of the Amorites in whose land you're living now, and then there are the gods that your forefathers served on the other side of the Euphrates. Three groups of idolatry. Just because you don't have the same idols as someone else doesn't mean you don't have idols. Um, one of my favorite is, he says, you yourselves know that one of you can chase a thousand, right? But if you read carefully, that promise is very contingent upon a couple things. A properly armed Christian, meaning a Christian who is in love with the Lord, a Christian who is faithful to the Lord, is more than a match for any thousand adversaries. So if you're getting your butt kicked all over the world, examine your love for the Lord. Because a Christian cannot be a victim. Amen. Can't be. Amen. All right? Not if there were a thousand demons attacking you. A Christian cannot be. But we're not going to teach that tonight. Great word. Hallelujah. He says, you are not able to serve the Lord. This brings us to the point of the book of Joshua. Joshua is placed among the prophets in the Bible because it points to a need for something to help them serve the Lord. That's the whole point. They go in and take the land, yes, but how much of it did they take? We're going to find out not nearly enough. They go in and take the land and are even given a rest, but we find out they were at rest while there were still enemies in the land. Joshua is a prophetic book about people who have received their inheritance, but not as much of it as they should have. In other words, it's about you. Yeah. It's about me. I love the book of Joshua for many, many reasons. Let's go through its placement in the Tanakh. Those were the things that I caught as Jennifer was reading. These are the things that I got earlier today. Um, when we study who the author of Joshua is, and we study its placement within the Tanakh, we start to see some beautiful things. Uh, y'all name the books of the law. Then we move into the Nevim, the prophets. The first of them is Joshua. Then Judges, Samuel, uh, Kings, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, and then the uh, Megaloth, the Twelve. We then move to the writings, which we're going to do in our next Bible study. We have been saying um, throughout our Bible studies for a couple years, since one of the disciples... And one of the disciples got the Newer Testament revelation since, I don't even remember, God revealed to us uh, the purpose of the law, the prophets, and the writings. Historically speaking, the Torah covers the founding of Israel. So when you're reading those five books, you see how God formed uh, a man and a family. He took one man, formed a family, and then made a whole nation from them. 
that ought to be inspiring to a church like ours who were dumb Gentiles that God revealed exactly the same plan to. Yes. Uh, a long time before we understood that this was what the Torah was about. Then, uh, when you move to the Nevi'im, you can see the first book in the Nevi'im, the prophets, is about the promised land, and then uh, what leads you into captivity. The unified theme of the prophets is, no matter what God has promised you, when you sin, it causes tohu vavohu. It causes desolation, chaos. That's, that's the uh, wages of sin. Then the Ketuvim is how you live uh, a faithful life in its historical context. When you consider that, you can see that the Tanakh is uh, an acronym then for Torah, Nevim, Ketuvim, and they added vowels so it would be pronounceable. Tanakh is literally just a way to abbreviate like NASA is, uh, National Aeronautic Space Association. <coughs> or need another seven astronauts, or whatever you uh, might see as the acrostic there. But we have come to believe, as we are reading the Torah, as we're reading the Navim and reading the Ketuvim, that the Torah specifically inclines the heart. You take this from passages like Deuteronomy 5.29, where you hear, oh, that their hearts were inclined to obey me. Yeah. Then it would go well with them and their children, and they would live long in the land. That the point of the Mosaic Revelation and the rest of the Torah, because they're, they're not completely synonymous, uh, the Torah includes the Mosaic Revelation, but it's not limited to it. We find out that the purpose was to instruct your heart, which is great. You might even read a passage like Deuteronomy 6.4 and read it as a promise that uh, you will love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength because you're meditating on his word. Then when you get to the prophets, here you see a prophet quoted. It's Isaiah 38, 15. But what can I say? He has spoken to me and he himself has done this. I will walk humbly all my years because of this anguish of my soul. Lord, by such things men live and my spirit finds life in them too. You restored me to health and let me live. Surely it was for my benefit that I suffered the anguish. In your love you kept me from the pit of destruction. You have put all my sins behind your back. This is a beautiful example of the way that the prophets warn you and cause anguish of soul. When you read the prophets, you ought to be grieving inwardly uh, because you recognize that more than anybody else, they address you. Yeah. Right? And that ought to be true if Matt reads it, if Wade reads it, or if Eric reads it. Uh, no matter where we're at, uh, the prophets point God's long, skinny finger, so to speak, at you. Uh, much harm has been done by taking the prophets and pointing them at others. <laughs> they well may point to others, but before they do that, they point to you. The Ketuvim tells us how to incline our strength. So when we hear that we're to love the Lord with all of our heart, with all of our soul, and all of our strength, he designed his Bible, the Tanakh, to address your heart, to address your soul, and to address your strength. In other words, the Bible was designed like you, to address you completely, not partially, not aimed at 
just obedience in the flesh, but a heart that's far from God. Not aimed at a heart that says it's after God, but feet that are running after wickedness. Not aimed at uh, somebody who's engaging the Lord in their mind, will, and emotions, much like the Greeks would tend to. You know, it's a great philosophy to ascend to. But aimed at total transformation. Joshua is going to assist us tonight. It's going to bring us to a place where, like them, you must choose. (laughs) And that's the point of a prophet. A prophet puts you in the position to have to make a choice. And that's a good good thing, don't you think? Yes. Okay. When we're thinking of prophets, 2 Kings 17, 13. Um, the Lord warned Israel and Judah through all his prophets and seers. What did he do with the prophets and seers? Warned. Warned. That's what they do. They warn the soul. What is their warning? Turn from your evil ways. Observe my commands in accordance with, what's that word? Entire Entire law that I commanded your fathers to obey and that I delivered to you through my servants, the prophets. Today, Orthodox Judaism uh, very often ignores the prophets. There's a reason for that. They, They would rather not be confronted with that truth. Christianity today almost entirely ignores the Torah. There's a reason for that. <laughs> okay, And they're both wrong. Yeah. We need the prophets in our life. Yeah. We need the law to address our hearts and our life. Yeah. And it's no mistake that the Brit Hadashah is broken into three very similar categories. We'll go into that another time. <coughs> As first among the prophets... Even Joshua's name is significant. And we've done this before, but if you can't uh, quote these verses and point to them, then you need to go over it again. The first time that we see uh, Joshua's name mentioned, he is Hoshea. And uh, you can find that in Numbers 13.8. Hoshea is um, a word that simply means deliverance. Or salvation, and you see its Hebrew spelling there. The next time that you see it, you see it as Yehoshua, which is the nickname that Moses, or Moshe, gave Hoshea. He began to call him Yehoshua. So, uh, he was not born Yehoshua. He, he, he was declared to be uh, Yehoshua. That's an interesting principle in and of itself. Um, By the time his name is being recounted in Nehemiah 8.17, it's Yeshua. When you then take these later Hebrew um, pronunciations of Yeshua and you put them into Greek, you get Jesus. When you take the Greek and you put it into English, you get Jesus. So, Mary never uttered the words Jesus. None of the followers uh, of the Messiah ever uttered the word Jesus. Never was it anything close, particularly not in the American South, where it's Jesus. Uh, His name was Yeshu, or Yeshua depending on whether you were from the northern part of Israel or the southern part of Israel. These small changes over time begin to accumulate. I'm not suggesting that he doesn't know who you're talking about when you call him Jesus, 
or that uh, it's wrong to say Joshua instead of Yehoshua, I'm suggesting that we probably ought to examine uh, their names as God gave them rather than as we've reformed them. Yeah. Uh, which is another fun question. Would you like to reform God's truth into an image that's more acceptable to you? Or would you like God's truth to reform your image into something that's more acceptable to Him? Come on. Most of our life, what we're doing is examining preconceived ideas, examining what you thought was truth before you walked into a room and were confronted by a prophet, mm. confronted by the Word of God, confronted by the ketuvim, where you have to examine how you walk something out. Wow. Many times I've had a revelation that was beautiful, and later a revelation that helped put that in better light, that made my previous understanding look so insufficient as to be wrong. You are learning and growing. Allow your thoughts to evolve about something. Truth that God reveals to you will never contradict previous truth that He's revealed to you. But it will often turn the stone in such a way that it looks entirely different. And that is an important facet. If you get stuck with square wheels, you're condemning yourself to not be able to grow, not be able to understand more of Him. You're presuming a complete knowledge of Him that I can assure you, you don't have. Amen. When we see the name then, even the way that Joshua is referred to in history points us to whom? That that alone, just the author's name. What the law declares, if Moses is the embodiment of the law, what the law points to is salvation being in the name Yeshua. That's incredible. If you didn't know anything else, you would have to read the rest of the book, right? Okay. When we look at the background of the man himself, you can kill that for a minute, Matthew. Let's, let's hand these out and read these. Because the background is going to come, we, we introduced some of these things in the beginning of the study. They're going to come into play tonight, remembering who the man is. So, um, Christy. Pastor's wives always get preference, Rob. First Chronicles 7, 20 through 27. During this study of Joshua was the first time that I ever considered this passage that we're about to hear. And its meaning has profoundly changed the way that I think about Joshua. The very first thing that we're going to do in a list of seven is probably the first thing that you need to know about the man Joshua, period. I apologize in advance for the names you're about to pronounce. So it's uh yeah, seven twenty <coughs> through twenty seven. Came to com- uh, comfort him. 
Then he lay with his wife again, and she became pregnant and gave birth to a son, and he named him Barath, because there had been misfortune in his family. His daughter was Shira, who built lower and upper Bethoron, as well as Uzin Shirah. Repha, Repha was his son, and Resha his son, Tela his son, Tahan his son, Laden his son, and Emihud was his son. Elishama his son, Nun his son, and Joshua his son. Tell me what you just caught in the 27th verse. Joshua. And his, his son, Joshua. Why is that important? See, I'm really glad that we, uh, we're going back over some of these. You know who's listed in the genealogies? Your firstborn son. What does that mean about the Passover? The blood of the lamb saved Joshua's life. Because he would have died had his home not been covered in the blood of the lamb. That's incredible. The very one that he is pointing to was typified by a lamb that was slain that delivered Israel from death. And Joshua benefited from it. That's incredible. You have no Joshua if you don't have a faithful man who covers his uh, doorpost in the blood of the Lamb. The first thing that you need to know about Joshua is he needed Jesus as bad as you do. That that will help you uh, have some mercy during the very few mistakes that he makes. Uh, Who's going to read next? Uh, Kylie, take Numbers 27, 15 through 20. And um, Mandy... Take Deuteronomy 34.9. Numbers 7, 15 through 20. 27. Numbers uh, 27, 15 through 20. <coughs> Moses said to the Lord, May the Lord, the God of the God of the spirits of all mankind, appoint a man over this community to go out and come in before them. One who will lead them out and bring them in, so the Lord's people will not be like sheep without a shepherd. So the Lord said to Moses, Take Joshua, son of Nun, a man in whom is the spirit, and lay your hands on him. Have him stand before Eleazar the priest and the entire assembly, and commission him in their presence. Give him some of your authority, so the whole Israelite community will obey him. Okay, now Deuteronomy 34, 9. 34, 9. Now Joshua, son of Nun, was filled with the spirit of wisdom because Moses had laid his hands on him. So the Israelites listened to him and did what the Lord had commanded Moses. So what has happened in these two passages? You have Moses pray that God would raise up someone to succeed him. And the criteria was that he be full of the spirit And when Moses laid his hands on him, he was. If Moses personifies the law, if he's the embodiment of the law, then all that the law was ever pointing to, all that the law ever wanted to bring into being, was found in Joshua. That's an incredible truth if you think about it. Particularly for people that see the ministry of Jesus 
and the law as opposed to each other. They can be no more opposed to each other than Moses and Joshua, the things that typify them are opposed to each other. In fact, the answer to Moses' prayer is Joshua. Let's turn that screen back on, Matthew. In the Greek language, when you see this word, telos, uh, y'all can read that properly, the point aimed at as a limit, uh, the conclusion of an act or state, uh, the result, immediate, ultimate, or prophetic, specifically uh, an impost or a levy paid. It's an interesting concept to think of Joshua is the telos, or the thing at which Moses was, you can leave it, the thing at which Moses was pointing at, and Jesus, the thing at which the law was pointing at. You know that there's a verse in the book of Romans that says exactly that? This is it. It's Romans 10.4 in the complete Jewish Bible. For the goal, the telos, at which the Torah aims is the Messiah, who offers righteousness to everyone who trusts. You know, that is exactly what Moses was praying for. For someone to succeed him who would take the people into the land that he didn't bring them into. Well, everything that the law was meant to prepare you for, Jesus brings you into the fullness of. And everything that Moses trained Joshua for, Joshua accomplishes and we heard that tonight in Joshua 23 and 24. He said not one of the good promises has failed to come about. He calls the land the good land over and over, even when he's rebuking them, saying that the Lord will throw you out of this good land. He's, he uses the word serve, you must serve the Lord, 21 times in two chapters. Okay, What do we learn from Jesus if not that the Lord is good, and that we should serve him. Amen. Yeah, of course. Yeah. Look at it in the 2011 NIV. Christ is the culmination of the law so that there may be righteousness for everyone who believes. Joshua's life and ministry points us towards Jesus. Now, there is an unfortunate translation error, uh, or at least error in understanding, in the 1984 NIV. It says... Therefore, Jesus Christ is the end of the law. When you hear end, you don't think culmination or goal at which something ends. You think termination. But that would stand in direct contrast to Jesus' own words that says, Think not that I came to abolish the law. Does that make sense to you? Yes. So in Joshua, we see how the prototype is supposed to work. Moses was yearning for, praying for, And God answered his prayer with Joshua, the one who would take them into the land. Which brings us to our third point about, you can leave it up, the third point about uh, Joshua. Jewish tradition says that he wrote Deuteronomy 34, 4 through 12. Who wants to read that? Rob. Deuteronomy 34, 4 through 12. Then the Lord said to him, This is the land I promised on oath to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob when I said, I will give it to your descendants. I have let you see it with your eyes, but you will not cross over into it. And Moses, the servant of the Lord, died there in Moab, 
as the Lord had said. So think on this for a second, Rob. Keep your finger exactly right there. Did Moses write the phrase and then Moses died? It had to be resurrected to write it, huh? Since he didn't write it, who was always with him on mountains? Joshua. Okay, so Jewish tradition says that Joshua wrote this. Now consider, if Moses didn't write these words, and he couldn't because he was dead, consider the way that Joshua speaks about Moses, and you're going to hear the way that Jesus would have spoken about the law if you, a Gentile, asked him. He buried him in Moab, in the valley opposite Beth Peor. But to this day, no one knows where his grave is. Moses was 120 years old when he died, yet his eyes were not weak, nor his strength gone. The Israelites grieved for Moses in the plains of Moab 30 days, until the time of weeping and mourning was over. Now Joshua, son of Nun, was filled with the spirit of wisdom because Moses had laid his hands on him. So the Israelites listened to him and did what the Lord had commanded Moses. Does that sound like Joshua was trying to replace the law? Or that the law made Joshua who he is? Yeah. Yes. Think about that. Do you think that Jesus is replacing the law? Or do you think the law is the substance of what Jesus is? Replace the word law for word of God and now you have it. The word of God became flesh. The law made Jesus. Yes. Jesus did not abrogate the law. Amen. Yes. Keep going. Yes, yeah. Yeah. Since then, no prophet has risen in Israel like Moses, whom the Lord knew face to face, who did all those miraculous signs and wonders the Lord sent him to do in Egypt, to Pharaoh and to all his officials and to his whole land. For no one has ever shown the mighty power or performed the awesome deeds that Moses did in the sight of all Israel. Now, let's, let's be honest here for a minute, okay? I know that the Word says nobody has ever done what Moses did. But did Moses knock down a whole city just by walking around it? No. No. Did, uh, did Moses stop the sun uh, from going down and kill entire armies with rocks falling from the sky uh, in, in a single day? No. <laughs> Who did those things? Yeah, and when you consider that those rocks falling from the sky, they had to be put there a long time before, and they still hit each person without hitting an Israelite. You know, how how do you kill Canaanites? God says it's easy, you just don't lead them so far. Right? <laughs> from our perspective, looking at Joshua, Joshua far outshines Moses, doesn't he? From Joshua's perspective, look how honoring he is of Moses, though. Okay? Now you're beginning to understand our relationship with Jesus and Moses. Jesus would have honored Moses. Yeah. Jesus honored the things that God revealed to Moses because they are what Jesus is made of. From our perspective, Jesus far outshines Moses. Does that make sense? Yes. You can see this reflected in their uh, relationship to each other. The fourth one. Jewish tradition on the Hakham, which uh, I'm not going to teach again tonight. You can refer to your notes from the beginning. If you'd like to see my notes on it, these are them. <laughs> uh, the, the, the Hakham uh, is the lead disciple of a rabbi. 
who would you say Jesus' lead disciple was? Peter. And interestingly enough, Moses renamed Joshua uh, from Hoshea to Joshua. Did um, Peter have another name? Yes. What was it? Cephas. Cephas or uh, Simon. And uh, Jesus gave him the name Peter. That is a long-standing tradition from Moses and Joshua forward that when rabbis take students, they rename one of their students a nickname. That student then becomes the example to the others, and you can follow the life of Peter and look at the life of Joshua with Moses, and you can see uh, how they follow parallel tracks. But we're not going to teach that now. Uh, The fifth one. Joshua was one of only two men in Israel who left Egypt and went into the promised land. Do you remember uh, about how many people we were estimating were traversing the desert? Three million. About three million. Out of three million, how many made it into the promised land? Two. Two. And one of them wrote this book that is a prophetic insight as to how you enter the promised land. Would you say that's an authoritative source? Yes. If you know three million people tried and two did it, and one of them wrote a 24-chapter book, would you read that book? Yes. Yes. Well, that's why we studied Joshua. Six. He was nearly stoned because he stood for the Lord when all but Caleb turned away. You can read that. Let's read it. Numbers 14.10. Who's going to do it? Steve. One of two men in the room who wanted to read the word. <laughs> Numbers 14. Throw your Bible at it. Stone. You can live the word. Why read it when you can live it? Throw rocks at it. But the whole assembly talked about stoning them. Then the glory of the Lord appeared at the tent of meeting to all the Israelites. See, I, I think we have to understand what is at stake in the kind of man that has written this down for us. He was one of two men that stood against an entire nation who became unfaithful. Does your admiration not go up for him? Yes. You want to have a fun Bible difficulty? We're not going to do it tonight. How many men uh, were there that wanted to, that wanted to go into the land? Where does that leave Moses? Where does that leave Eleazar? Where does that leave Aaron? Where does that leave them? Some of the Jewish commentaries suggest that uh, God was upset with Moses from that point forward. You have to figure that out. I'm not going to. Seven. His first appearance in the scriptural narrative is Exodus 17.9. And that's important because Exodus 17.9. Somebody read it. Who's going to read it? Whoever gets there first. How about that? What is the very first thing that Joshua appears in the Bible to do? To fight the Amalekites. But what does he do before he fights? He chooses men. Come on, think about that. Which kind do you think he chose? The Turkish wet noodle? Which one do you think he chose? He chose men who wanted to go fight. Yeah? What does it mean to be chosen by Jesus? You were chosen for battle because he thought you could win. Amen. Yeah. 
Y'all aren't excited enough about that. What's wrong with you? Are you frozen? Y'all all regressing to your Presbyterian state? (laughs) What's going on? The first time Yehoshua, Yeshua, appears on the scene was to lay waste to the enemy. Amen. Do you know whose arms had to be held up? (coughs) Moses. Yes. That was not because of the weakness of the law. It was because of the weakness of the man that was the embodiment of the law. What's more is, Joshua doesn't win in the valley if the law is not lifted high. His purpose is to win the battle because the law is lifted high. Amen. It pleased the Lord to make the law great and glorious in His sight. So now we're going to look at some ways in which we've learned that Joshua foreshadows the book of Revelation. Now, you've heard some of these before. Now that you've learned the book, perhaps it will mean more. In Revelation, there are two witnesses as to God's promise being true on earth. Do you see how Joshua and Caleb were two witnesses that showed God's promises were true on earth? Yes. I mean, that's what he dies witnessing. Uh, Both books are a military campaign based on seven trumpets. Many people would say that both books take place over seven years. We'll let you argue about which one is easier to say is exactly seven years. I laid out the case for Joshua being exactly seven years, and I don't want to do that again tonight. Mm. Under close examination, the book of Joshua seemed to be a precursor to the book of Revelation. After 40 hours of study, can you see how that's true now? Yes. Yes. In the book of Revelation, another Yehoshua, who is commander-in-chief, dispossesses the planet Earth of its usurpers. He first sends in two witnesses, and then he has a series of judgments based on seven, and he finally defeats the kings with signs in the sun and the moon while the kings of the Earth hide in caves. Doesn't that sound like the first ten chapters of Joshua completely? Yes. Kings hiding in caves... Signs in the heavens and uh, a complete routing of the enemy in the promised land. Amen. Uh, before we end tonight, you're going to notice that Joshua's closing remarks in this book further the prophetic status of the book by pointing out the fact that the people are not able to serve the Lord. <laughs> and the biggest reason is the Lord is holy. And they're not. Joshua is pointing for the need for another Joshua. The book of Joshua is calling for the king of the book of Revelation. Amen. How appropriate that it's the first book right out of the law. That's beautiful. Yeah. Particularly when you consider how far before Jesus is born these things are done. Mm. Okay, let's go back to our screen. Let's summarize many chapters at a time. Chapter 1 through 5 in Joshua was about entering the battle for the land. You remember this map? Mm-hmm. Yes. We crossed the Jordan at Beth Bara, the house of the crossing, the other Bethany, the Bethany that is a long ways from <laughs> Jerusalem, the Beth Bara that is now in Palestinian controlled uh, territory, <laughs> and no one other than Baalish and Natalie that I know have gone to. And uh, they moved from east to west. 
across the Jordan, and they cut the country in half. Then they defeated everybody in the south and then began marching northward. You now understand some of that geography and why. When you hear of Jericho, you ought to know that it stands opposite the Jordan River. You ought to know that where John the Baptist went out to do his baptisms was the site of their crossing. You ought to know that there's two monuments there. I mean, there's so much that you ought to know about that at this point. Chapters 6 through 12 were about overcoming the enemy. Now that you're in the land, you're in the promised land, how do you defeat the enemies that are in the promised land? In these chapters, we noticed an incredible paradox that ensued. You can summarize them in chapters 6 and 7. Uh, somebody read Joshua 6, 27 through 7, 1, Abimbola. So it's the last verse of chapter 6 and the first verse of chapter 7. Chapter 6, 27 through 7, 1. So the Lord was with Joshua, and his fame spread throughout the land. But the Israelites acted unfaithfully in regard to the devoted things. Achan, son of Carmi, the son of Zimri, the son of Zerah, of the tribe of Judah, took some of them. So the Lord's anger burned against Israel. Now, when you see this, this sets off a pattern. It's a pattern in your life, but you have the benefit of reading about it as an example in Joshua's life and in his ministry. As we look at that, you're going to notice that it's always after a victory that the people of God fall flat on their face. You could get the impression that struggle's good for you, that failure actually helps you to produce success, and too many successes actually cause you to become a failure. At that time, I wrote that the astonishing contrast between the last verse of the 6th chapter and the first verse of the 7th chapter is perhaps the second greatest thesis in the scripture. I say second because the only story emphasized with more veracity is the ability of our God to save us despite the fact that we're constantly falling on our face. Uh, can anybody quote Romans 5.6? Watch, watch this. Can you quote Romans 5, 6 now? Very rarely will anyone die for a righteous man, though for a good man someone might possibly dare to die. But God demonstrates His own love for us. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Did He get you at the height of your victory or at the depth of your defeat? When you need a very great Savior is when He's very great to you. So after they defeat Jericho, after Joshua's fame is spread throughout the land, what happens? They're liable to sin and fall flat on their face. This sets off some interesting uh, issues. When you see chapter 6 is victory, chapter 7 is failure, uh, what happens uh, in chapter 8? We have another success. They finally defeat I. When chapter 9, you get the Gibeonite deception, which is a failure. That's incredible, isn't it? Yes. 
Contrary to the prevailing ignorance of our time, we're more vulnerable in our successes than we are our defeats. It seems like Joshua failed to inquire from God after he succeeded, not after he failed. When are you most likely to pray? Yeah, are you, are, is your prayer life more strong while you are winning at every turn or when you're not sure you're going to have enough to eat, when uh, your kids are sick, when you uh, feel estranged from fellowship, when is it that you pray the most? No, I'm asking you a question. When is it that you pray the most? Failure. Desperation and failure. This was uh, profound to me at the time, and I will try never to forget it. Success often causes the failure of self-reliance. Mercy leads us back to success. You need to be rich in mercy. You need to be short in self-reliance. So next time your pride swells up and you think you ought to be able to handle it on your own, you're a failure. The next time you think you don't need the fellowship around you, you're a failure. The next time you have the feeling, I got this, you've already failed. Dependency on the Lord is success. Independence from the Lord causes people to be thrown from God's presence. Matthew. That really is a good good word. Chapters 13 through 24 are about occupying the land. This is what we're about to close out tonight. And when you think about it, how do we enter the land? Now that we're in the land, how do we fight for the land? Now that we fought for the land, how do we live and operate in the (laughs) land? These are questions that have to do with how do I get saved? How do I... Uh, stay saved and how do I make sure that my walk ends up at the point of ultimate salvation Joshua 18 3 through 4 somebody read that so Joshua said to the Israelites how long will you wait before you begin to take possession of the land that the Lord the God of your fathers has given you appoint three men from each tribe I will send them out to make to make a survey of the land and write a description of it according to the inheritance of each. Then they will return to me. You could get the impression that Joshua was frustrated. How long will you wait to enter the land? He sounds a little bit like a pastor at LCM. How long are you going to wait to grab hold of what God has told you is yours? How long are you going to sit and talk about the promises of God instead of actually walking them? How long will you say, oh no, I trust the Lord for my finances while you bite your nails? How long will you sit and say, I know the Lord is going to give us a child while you sit and worry you don't have? How long will you sit and say, I know the Lord can fix it without believing that He is fixing it? How long will you wait? That is what these chapters are about. We know what the promises of God are. How do we actually walk in them? That's the point here. Man, that strikes so close to home, doesn't it? Yes. yes. Matthew. On the screen, you're going to see something that is, um, we, we've covered a lot. And um, let me blow it up where you can see it. These are the tribal distributions. So here, you can see Asher and Naphtali, East Manasseh, Zebulun, Ishakar, Manasseh, Gad, Ephraim, 
Dan, Benjamin, Reuben, Judah, Lamlock, Simeon, right? You see these? That is an incredible map and a beautiful picture, but it's a fraction of God's intention. Yeah. Okay? When you see this, I'm going to show you again in a minute what the borders are supposed to be of the promised land. But before I show you what the borders are supposed to be, and you're looking at what is, you have to ask, why would there be any difference at all? And that brings us to you, to me. Who wants to read? Judah. Take Numbers 32. You don't have these anywhere in your notes from any previous study, so you are going to want to write this. Numbers 32, 39 through 40. And who's got the next one? JJ, take Joshua 17, 14 through 18. Numbers 32, 39 through 40. The descendants of Machri, son of Manasseh, went to Gilead, captured it, and drove out the Amorites who were there. So Moses gave Gilead to the Machrites and the descendants of Massah. They settled there. How about those Machrites? I know you're reading this and you've all been uh, contemplating the Machrites. <laughs> the Kraft Machrites. Can I have some extra cheese with that? <laughs> what you see in this and we've got one from Moses and one from Joshua, is that the allotments were a place for them to start. They got to keep anything they conquered. See, sometimes salvation is just the place to start. The question is, how much of the land do you want to conquer? The sky's actually the limit. If you go out and cut the head off of a giant, God will give you his land. Amen. Do you know, every time you see a demonic stronghold, you have the ability to tear it down? Do you know that every time you see people imprisoned by the enemy, you have the ability to set them free? That is the ministry of Jesus Christ, but we often settle for the little allotment that you were given, which is your life set free. Wow. We're supposed to go further. Okay? The reason that the tribal... Uh, we'll read Joshua, then we'll put him back on the screen. The reason the tribal inheritances were fairly small was it was the place that they started. They're supposed to radiate outward, which is really interesting when some are placed inside of others. What does that tell you God knew about their hearts from the beginning? Wow. Okay. But it required partnership. Have you ever read the book of Judges? Who's to go first? Judah. And who does he turn to? Simeon. Simeon is landlocked inside of Judah. If they're going to do it, they got to do it together because God likes covenant. For righteousness sake. Amen. Whatever one territory did affected the other. So Judah turns and says, Simeon, you're going to help me? Well, yeah, because if you win, I also win. (laughs) And if you lose, man, how much better would we be if we viewed our covenants as inside of each other and not independent from each other? Okay, Joshua 17, 14 through 18. The people of Joseph said to Joshua, Why have you given us only one allotment and one portion for inheritance? We are a numerous people, and the Lord has blessed us abundantly. If you are so numerous, Joshua answered, and if the hill country of Ephraim is too small for you, go up into the forest and clear land for yourselves there in the land of the Perizzites and Rephites. The people of Joseph replied, 
The hill country is not enough for us, and all the Canaanites who live in the plain have iron chariots, both those in Bethshan and the settlements in, and those in the valley of Jezreel. But Joshua said to the house of Joseph, to Ephraim and Manasseh, You are numerous and very powerful. You will have not only one allotment, but the forest, the forested hill country as well. Amen. Clear it, and its farthest limits will be yours. Though the Canaanites have iron chariots, and though they are strong, you can drive them out. I want you to notice what faith does here. Now, Amen. they're not speaking in faith. They're asking, Joshua, give it to us. We want you to do it. If God wants it done, he'll do it. Cowardly Christian says that. What Joshua is saying is, as you said, you're very numerous. Go up and take it. Amen. There's a pause. Then they talk a little while longer. He goes, listen, you are very numerous. And this is too small for you. <laughs> and they do have iron chariots. But you're very numerous. Go take it. Yeah. See, the call from us to the Lord is, hey, will you do it for me? The call from the Lord back to you is, I've already given what you need to do it. Go do it. Yeah, that's so good. And because he's a good Lord, he encourages you that you can do it. Yeah. Now, the pastors were just in Bethshan. They were also in Megiddo. This is the area in the mountain range between those two places. We found out at Megiddo that there are more than 20 layers of, of uh, civilization. Yeah. And that they did indeed have iron chariots. And that everybody fought over it. And you know what, Josh, and that was that was all the way back to Joshua's death. There are giants in the hills too. And you know what Josh, Joshua's response is? Yeah, go on, big boy. Go do it. You said you're too numerous. Well, go do it. It might be that God puts you in a situation that feels too small for you to see whether you'll trust him as you work to expand what he gave you. Amen. The whole point here was that they would take what they were given and grow it, kind of like the entire 25th chapter of Matthew. Wow. Those were given two talents, three talents, or five talents. What were they supposed to do with them? And if you didn't, you know what you were called? Wicked, Wicked lazy, and unfaithful. Wow. That's incredible, isn't it? Yeah. I want to show you the two pictures. I should have put them side by side. Wow. Okay, here, the land that they occupied. You got it? Got it. Everybody got a good mental image? Yes, sir. Occupied land. Land they're supposed to occupy. That's incredible, isn't it? Never did, but they will. I want to encourage you then in six days... Israel took two-thirds more land than they have right now. And they're so confident in their ability to take it that when it was over, they gave it back. We can do it again. <laughs> Goodness. Okay. While we're talking about this uh, ability to occupy the land, I want to remind you that the book of Joshua is an encouragement to fight for what God says you're supposed to have. Amen. He actually says you have it before you do so that you know you're allowed to fight for it. If you've ever been trying to fix something, work on something, and you're not sure how hard you can push, you're not sure whether it's going to break, but after you've seen it done once, after that it's easy, you're just like, yeah, give me the sledge. Yeah. Let's, let's, <laughs> let's just do this, right? Yes. God wants you to know you can use a sledgehammer on the enemy. 
Amen. He wants you to know that. So he's telling you ahead of time what is supposed to be yours so Amen. that you won't settle for less. Amen. But he loves you enough to give you a place to stand to start. Salvation is the start of a walk with God. It's not the completion of it. Amen. We're not going to recover the city of refuge tonight. We're not going to recover the misunderstood altar. Those were things that we taught here fairly recently, and I expect you to remember, but I did want to show you this picture. This was a satellite view of Israel with the six cities of refuge. I wanted to show you how centrally located they were. I wanted to remind you that nobody was ever more than a day away from the city of refuge. Now, at the end of the book of Joshua, Eleazar, the priest, dies. What does that mean for the city of refuge? It's open season. <laughs> you got to hope the Avenger of Blood's forgotten. Right? Uh, that's why it's important we have uh, Jesus who never dies. Amen. Okay? Now, I hope that y'all would pick up on something like that now. Uh, knowing about the city of refuge helps you with that. Do you remember these were definitions, just as a reminder? Kadesh means righteousness. Shechem means shoulder. Hebron, fellowship. Bezer, fortress. Ramoth, heights. Golan, exile. Righteousness, because we can never be accused again. Shechem, because we're on the shoulder of the shepherd. He is carrying us. Hebron, because we've entered into fellowship with him. Bezer, because he is our fortress. We are safe. Ramoth, because we dwell in the heights. Golan, because even though we dwell in the heights, we are exiles, pilgrims, and strangers in the world. Amen. Suffice it to say, there's been a lot of study that's gone into this book. I hope yeah. it benefits your life. It's benefited mine just to share it with you. Yeah. Regarding the misunderstood altar, I wanted to refer you to the message Franchising Faithlessness. Remind you that men may accept your behavior, but that doesn't mean God does. That's an important point. At the end of the day, it is important to live in harmony with the people around you, but it's far more important that you know that you're in harmony with God. And it is very possible that you have gained harmony with your brothers, but not with God. Because men are wicked, and they'll often agree to whatever is easiest. Joshua is a prophetic book. The victory that it aims at is a victory of faith and action. The key verse in this entire book is Joshua 1.8. Who's going to read that? Spence. Joshua 1 verse 8. Do not let this book of the law depart from your mouth. Meditate on it day and night, so that you may be careful to do everything written in it. Then you will be prosperous and successful. The key to Joshua's success and yours is meditating on the Word of God. When I see pastors make mistakes, elders make mistakes, sheep make mistakes, children make mistakes, they all make them for exactly the same reason. They don't have enough respect for what the Word of God says or they don't know what the Word of God says. It's always those two things. They either don't take it seriously enough or they didn't know it said it to start with. Which one of those is excusable? Neither. The most important thing to pick up in our overview of Joshua as we go into these 
two chapters is the attitude of Joshua. He suffered failure, but he turned it into a, a success. He suffered uh, sin and defection, but that didn't... When you consider that he had to spend 38 years in the desert because of somebody else's unfaithfulness, and you never hear not, not one bit of bitterness about that. I mean, that in my mind is a bigger miracle than the walls of Jericho falling down. If you make me spend 38 years estranged from the promise of God, I'm going to want to fight with you. Okay? Um, Joshua handled it admirably. He defeats the world at Jericho, leaning on the Lord only. No weapons. He saves the, the Gentile graftins, Rahab and the Gibeonites. He fights for and completes God's promised inheritance to Israel, the allotment of the land. He is the desire of Moses or the law come to its culmination. And he does all this by trusting in the word of God alone. What can you do if you begin to trust in the Word of God. Amen. You're Gentiles. I'm a Gentile. We're Greek-minded. We think we have trusted in the Word when we agree that it is true. You're not trusting in the Word of God until you are doing what it says to do. Agreeing with it doesn't put you even ahead above the demons. They agree with it too. They're scared based on what it says. Because they know it's true, but they don't do what it says. Mm. So when I say trusting in the Word of God, you need to have that prophetic finger point at you. Where are you not trusting in the Word of God? Where does your behavior show that you do not trust God? I suspect that there's more areas than you would most readily admit to. That is the purpose of looking into the mirror of God's Word. The book of Joshua is active. It's victorious. It's on the offensive life of faith. Now let's come to tonight's objectives. Y'all ready? Ready. We're going to break up Joshua's 23 and 24 into three areas. Before we do that, and before I give you what those are, and we start to outline them, there is a common mistake that I want to get out of the way, though. Somebody read Joshua 23.2. Who's going to do that? Who said me? Daniel. Okay, who wants 24.1? I do. Uh, Chris. Joshua 23.2. Summon all Israel, the elders, leaders, judges, and officials, and said to them, I am old and well advanced in years. Where did this take place? Show me Shechem. Let me save you the time. You can't. This is more than one address taking place. The first one occurs from an unknown location. And he's old and well advanced in in years. The second one takes place at Shechem. And the reason that it says it is because it's obviously not the same address as the first. But they're compiled together. And there's a reason for that. Jesus did this with his parables, too. He probably told the same parable in more than one location because there was more than one group of people that needed to hear it. But they never contradicted each other. They were always, in substance, the same. This is the reason that we have three synoptic Gospels in John. Look at Joshua 24, 1. Then Joshua... Wait, what was the first word? Then. 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 (laughs) You understand what I'm saying by that? 
These are, this is connecting the two. Then Joshua assembled all the tribes of Israel at Shechem. He summoned the elders, leaders, judges, and officials of Israel, and they, re- and they presented themselves before God. Okay, in both cases, we have a very similar list. The first one in uh, Joshua 23.1 says all Israel. The uh, second one in Joshua 24.1 says the tribes of Israel. Can we agree that those are likely the same thing? Yeah. All of Israel and the tribes of Israel? Yes. If you then combine those, both have the same list. The tribes of Israel, say one. 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 The elders, two. two. The leaders, three. The judges, four. The officials, five. So we're speculating that Israel is the model of God's government on earth. This is at least roughly analogous to the church, it's government. In Ephesians 4, how many pieces of government are there? Five. Five. Now you can spend your time figuring out how they correlate to each other. I'm introducing you to the idea. But when Joshua is addressing them, he breaks them into five categories in two different speeches. When Paul is outlining the government of God's church, he breaks them into five pieces. Mm. That's interesting, don't you think? Yeah. Both Israel had a fivefold government and the church has a fivefold government. His address is divided into three categories. The categories are reminiscent of the book of Revelation. I'm going to give you the three categories and then we'll come back to them. The first one are future dangers. We'll put them on the screen for everybody, Matt. Future dangers. This is chapter 23, 1 through 16. He is warning them about the perils to come and how to handle them. The second one is past blessings. That's chapter 24, verses 1 through 13. The third is present responsibilities. Chapter 24, 14 to 33. There's a reason for that. When you know what is coming ahead of you, when you've been warned about the future, and you look back at the past to see what God's already done, that helps you zero in on what your responsibilities are today. Joshua's valedictory speech starts with telling them what's going to happen the moment they walk out of the room. Hmm. <laughs> Which is interesting since that's what valedictory speeches are supposed to do now, right? Yeah. We've all come here in the year 1993 as uh, graduates uh, with a bright future ahead of us. We're going to go out and compete in the marketplace for jobs. Most of you are going to live in your parents' basement for a while. The other half of you are going to fail out of college. None of you are going to work in your actual degree. I mean, you, you understand. We're talking about future dangers. Yes. <coughs> Could do the Winston Churchill. Never, never, never give up. Okay. We're going to take those three areas, but before we do, I got enraptured in something today. Amen. And I'd like to uh, read that to you. Have you read it to me? Would that be okay? Yes. Y'all read it to me? Yes. That reminded me of something. 
So when we're thinking of those three categories being addressed by Joshua, you could say that that is the revelation of Joshua given to the 12 tribes, which reminded me of the revelation of Jesus Christ given to us. So let's look at Revelation 1, 4 through 8. Who's going to read it? I'm there. Got it. <laughs> Nick, Nick beats all there. John, to the seven churches in the province of Asia, grace and peace to you from him who is, and who was, and who is to come. Wait, hold there. Who is, presently, who was in the past, and who is to come in the future. Do you hear the same three areas? Yes. Keep going. And from the seven spirits before his throne, and from Jesus Christ, who is the faithful witness, the firstborn from, from the dead, and the ruler of the kings of the earth. Who was a faithful witness on the earth, who is the firstborn from among the dead presently, and who's coming back to be the ruler of the kings of the earth in the future. Amen. Okay, next verse. To him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood, and has made us to be a kingdom. To him who loves us in your past, he loved you. He has presently freed you. And he is making you to be a kingdom of priests. Do you hear all three categories? To him be glory and power forever and ever. Amen. Look, he is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him, and all the peoples of the earth will mourn because of him. Before we go any further, is it fair to say that the revelation of Jesus is warning you about future? Yes. Well, that's a natural place to start then for the revelation of Joshua, isn't it? Yes. Both encourage you to look at your past, present, future. Sometimes the order is different depending on what they want to emphasize. Read verse 8. I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. Who is, who was, and who is to come. You hear it again, right? Who is presently, who was in the past. And who is to come. Um, This illustrates what I've always called the Lord of history. I think the reason that Jesus revealed the book of Revelation to John in that manner is he is telling him, I am over all, both the past, your present, and your future. Of course, it might be a reference to our being, uh, uh, your present salvation, your having been saved in the past, and your future salvation. It can also be a reference to being saved, sanctified, and glorified. You hear that a lot, right? How interesting that Joshua's valedictory address has to do with their future state, their past state, but ends with their present state. Do you think that's important? I, I couldn't see it as anything other than part of the integrated design of God's Word. I even made a chart for you. Matthew. I took each of the statements from Revelation 4 through 8 and I put them into their present, past, and future. So he presently, who is, in the past, who was, in the future, who is to come. Uh, The faithful witness, the firstborn from among the dead, the ruler of kings. I put them all in present, past, future, just so you could see it. All that's in the first chapter. How about this one? Who loves us, has freed us, and makes us to be a kingdom of priests. 
who put them under the Passover lamb, who put them in the promised land, but then said, go take the promised land. Yes. Sometimes the emphasis is changed a little bit to make a point. Do you see how these go present, past, future? Yes. Look at Revelation 1, 19. Trying to squeeze it on the screen somehow. Right therefore, what you have seen, that's the past. What is now, that's the present. And what will take place in the future. Wow. See, he changed the order there. He, he changed the order uh, because the book of Revelation is emphasizing the future. You know, yeah. you know what the book of Joshua is emphasizing? <clears throat> the present. Yeah. He, he talks about their future. He talks about their past, and then he leaves them with their present responsibility. Wow. That's interesting, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> you can kill that. Let's get into these categories. Fair? Amen. Fair. I looked up and caught one of your faces. We all have different views about the book of Revelation. I want you to know I do not put it in the future. I'm simply saying it was in John's future. <laughs> Does that make sense? Yeah. Okay, there we go. So, uh, there's so many things to cover while you're teaching. Amen. Let's look at future dangers, okay? I want to illustrate to you first a couple passages uh, in Joshua 23 that, that show you that what I'm saying is true. So, uh, Ella, Joshua 23, 5. Frank. Joshua 23, 12 through 13. Joshua 23, 5. The Lord God himself will push them out for your sake. He will what? Push them out for your sake. He has done it, he is doing it, or he will do it. Do you hear how it's in the future? It was not all done, even though they're saying they're going to rest, even though they're saying none of God's promises have failed. They haven't failed, but they're ongoing. Yeah. How interesting that today we can't seem to settle the state of our salvation. We speak as if we were saved when the Bible speaks of us as having been saved, being saved, and needing to be saved in the future. Yes. We forget that the promises of God are ongoing and must be walked in. The book of Joshua assumes that you know that. Yeah. It assumes that 20th century theologians haven't screwed this up for you. Yeah. <laughs> Amen. Okay, keep going, Ella. He will drive them out before you, and you will take possession of the land as the Lord your God promised you. Isn't that interesting? Yeah. God will do it, and you will do it. <laughs> what happens if you don't do it? God will find someone who will do it. Amen. Okay, this is a promise that is still in the future. They have possession, but they have not completely eliminated the threat. They are saved but they still must continue in sanctification. Now, in the same passage, he tells them what the danger is that will keep them from doing it. He tells them what they must do and then tells them what is going to war against them doing it. He's warning them about future danger. Go ahead, Frank. Verse 12. But if you turn away and ally yourself with the survivors of these nations... Uh (laughs) Uh-oh. If you ally with the survivors... There's not supposed to be survivors. But there is. When you get saved, you're a new creation, but you're not. (laughs) When you get saved, you're righteous, but you're not. 
See, this is the paradox that we're always in. They have the promised land, but they don't. They're in it, but they're not alone in it. You were saved, but not all of you is saved. Yeah. <coughs> Your body's still dying, isn't it? Yeah. Yes. Yeah? Your thoughts, they're all together righteous all of the time? So how saved are you? Well, it's something that is declared in your spirit that you're warring in your mind for and forcing your body to accept. Amen. It's not done yet. Yeah. You're saved in your spirit. You're being sanctified in your thoughts, emotions, and you will be glorified in your flesh. They're in that process too. If they made allies, say ally. Allies. If they allied with enemies of God, then the process stops. What happens if you ally with the enemies of God? Keep going, Frank. And ally yourself with the survivors of these nations that remain among you. And if you intermarry with them... And Shut up! Them. Not just ally with them! What are we doing now? Intermarrying. You mean you're forming strong alliances, covenant-like relationships with things that you're not supposed to? What could that be talking about? See, God views you as in a marriage with him. But if you pollute that by also being in a marriage with other things, that will stop the promises of God in your life. Come on, this is a prophetic book for you. Okay, keep going. If you intermarry with them and associate with them... (laughs) Wouldn't you think associate with them would come before marry them? Yes. We might not be talking about, you know, romantic redemption kind of marriage. We might be talking about, you know, pay by the hour kind of marriage. You ever, um, you ever thought that some sin would just be so fulfilling, but it wasn't? Yes. Yep. But now you've married to it. You've already committed the indecent act. Yeah, that's what this is speaking about. Sometimes people feel committed based on the things that they did that they shouldn't have done, so then they associate with. And they associate with in the hopes that those feelings will fade. This is why every time somebody is falling away, they go find those who already have fallen away, and they find fellowship together. Wow. Pilate and Herod had never been friends until the trial of Jesus. Then they became close friends. Yeah. You know. Um, one of us gets mad at all of the rest and we go hang out somewhere for a while. Anybody who ever got disenchanted with this church, they all connect. Mm-hmm. Cain always goes off and builds a city. And if two of you are freaking perverts, you'll find each other in the church somewhere. Yep. Sitting in the back as far away from everybody as you can possibly get. You know, That's just how this works. We need to be really, really careful who we associate with. Mm. Yeah. In fact, if somebody that you once knew to be pathetically unrighteous, unfaithful, and you stood against, calls you on the phone and says, hey, I just thought we could talk and it's not about repentance, you need to ask yourself, why are they calling me? What category am I now in? See, they're not supposed to ally. (laughs) They're not supposed to associate. We sure can't intermarry. Whatever order you want to put those things in, because it will keep them from possessing the land. Mm. And why did they cross the Jordan? 
to possess the land. But now that they have a little square of it, they were in danger of forgetting why they were there. Kind of like when you promise you'll serve the Lord forever if you just get out of jail, and then you get out of jail and forget why you were let out of jail. Happens all of the time. In my life and in your life too. You better hunt it down and kill it. Keep going, Frank. Then you may be sure that the Lord your God will no longer drive out these nations before you. Instead, they will become snares and traps for you. Whips on your backs and thorns in your eyes. Oh, what? Whips Whips on on your backs. backs. Thorns Thorns in your eyes. (laughs) This is why once you've crossed those lines, you don't think they're wrong anymore. Your eyes have been put out and you can't see. That's why you need a jarhead covenant. Until you perish from this what kind of land? Good land. Good land. How many times do they say things like they wish they were back in Egypt? It's no longer good when you're what's wrong with it. (laughs) When faced with the choice between you being guilty or everybody else, human nature says it's them, not me. Yeah. Okay, so let's do this. Do Jesus and the law contradict each other? No. I'm very proud of you for that. You're a step ahead of most now. Neither do Joshua and Moses. In fact, Joshua was a student of Moses, and he's quoting him. Let's look at that together. I'm going to put my Bible on the screen because it's... It's an amazing Bible. (laughs) And I want you to see it. This is my Bible. There are many that are like it, but this one is mine. (laughs) In this passage, we see in Numbers 33, a color-coded, because I take good notes when others teach, farewell address from Moses. On the plains of Moab by the Jordan across from Jericho, the Lord said to Moses, Speak to the Israelites and say to them, When you cross the Jordan into Canaan, drive out how many? All the inhabitants of the land before you. Destroy all their carved images and cast idols and demolish all their high places. Take possession of the land and settle in it, for I've given you the land to possess. Look at verse 55. But if you do not drive out the inhabitants of the land, those you allow to remain will become barbs in your eyes, thorns in your sides, and will give you trouble in the land where you are. What's the end result? And then I will do to you what I plan to do to them. That's incredible. You drive out all or they become barbs in your eyes. You destroy all or they're thorns in your side. You demolish all or they're trouble in your land. You take possession or he will do to you what he planned to do to them. Did you all hear Joshua's quote of Moses? By the words thorn, by the the end result? There is a cause and effect relationship between our future state and the seriousness with which we pursue the objectives God has given us. Don't think that God can tell you to do something today, be it work somewhere, not work somewhere, marry someone, not marry someone, buy this house, don't buy this house. Don't you believe for a minute 
that you can hear what God says to do, not do it, and that won't affect your future state. It is a serious mistake to think, well, I can repent later. God's permissive will will allow me to get around to it. I don't find that in the Word. Not anywhere. The seriousness with which you, right now, pursue what God has told you to do determines where you will be next year at this time. Yeah, that's a good one. That's true. That is true. Okay, now let's reverse engineer that. Why are you right now where you are at? Hmm. Because of the seriousness with which you did or did not pursue God in the last year. We have a fine way of setting aside what we know he said and say that we are seriously pursuing the Lord. What we mean is, we heard God, ignored him, and said, please tell me something else, anything else. Hmm. That happens so much. And a life is irreversibly changed. Somebody does not in 1995 get a call to ministry, get it confirmed by everybody, go everywhere, announce that they have that call to ministry, and then in 2015, suddenly not have that call to ministry. But if they have for those 18 years not done what God said, they have forever affected their future state. And there may be no way back. Guys, that is uh, something not taught enough in Christianity. Because of God's grace, we act like it's a license to do what we want. It's not. You know? God will forgive you for getting drunk and driving the car down the road. But that will not bring your dead children back. He will forgive you for uh, having an indiscreet relationship. But that will not make a child unborn. That will... See, there are long-lasting consequences that even though you are forgiven... Your life is changed because of it. Forgiven does not mean that there are no changes that occur to your life. Right? If you steal from the offering, I will forgive you, but you will never take up the offering again. Is that reasonable? Do you think God is more or less reasonable than us? Do you see what I'm saying? Because so often he erases even the circumstances, though. We expect that that's the case every time. And sometimes he tells us in advance, if you do this, there will never be a time when there's not a sword in your house. He forgave David, but there was warfare for the rest of his life. Period. No way around it. No amount of crying, begging, pleading. He he may have well forgiven Esau. That's between him and Esau. But it would never bring back the blessing, no matter how hard he sought it. See, we need to be careful what we did, right? I say this because people say, well, we forgive and restore. I want to forgive and restore. Uh, Everybody wants to forgive and restore. I want to be forgiven and restored. Sometimes there is no way to bring back what has been broken there. This is an example of that, okay? If you do not drive out sin from your life, that sin will have an effect on your life that may not be able to be changed. And the fact that it sometimes is changed is mercy. But mercy that you count on in advance is not really mercy, is it? Yeah, let that settle in for just a minute. You know what that makes us do? Seriously consider our actions. Yeah. Are you sitting in this room right now and something that God has told you to do is left undone? 
Please don't think you're safe going to sleep tonight. You're not. Period. If God has said to do it, you need to waste no... I don't care if you get up and run out of the room to go do it. I'll be offended, but God won't. Mm-hmm. Right? Amen. When God speaks, you must act. Amen. And putting it off, renegotiating it, talking about it, you don't have that right. It will affect you forever. Yeah. Right? Spend, spend ten years in a dead church and watch what it does to your life. You are wasting the life that God gave you when we do things like that. Wow. Let, let me hear from God that I'm supposed to do something. Let's just say that it's talked to you. And I won't do it because I'm scared. I won't do it because I'm angry. I won't do it because I'm tired. Well, that affects two of us. Okay? Mm. There's no way around this. There's no New Testament magic verse that erases all of this. It's true. It's absolutely true. And when I look back over 24 years of Christianity, you know what I see? I see that most are grossly unfaithful. They all claim to be faithful the entire time. And they form groups with people that are about on the same level as they are. And they all encourage each other in their unfaithfulness. They never reach the potential that God has for them. That's so sad. But then I read a book like Joshua and I say two out of three million. Mm. You know, it's up to you which category you're in. It's up to you. There could have been 200,000. There could have been two million. It was up to them. The book of Joshua is ultimately about the choices that we make. Wow. Not driving out a sinful habit becomes a blinding barb in the future. Let me say that again. Not driving out a sinful habit becomes a blinding barb in the future. So I don't see anything wrong with it. There's a reason you don't. You've been sleeping with it long enough. You've learned to love it. You're associating with it now. Not destroying a sinful fantasy becomes devastating thorn in your side, in your future. Not demolishing a sinful relationship becomes a devilish and troubling situation in your future. Not taking possession of your promises cause you to perish from the good life God has given you. Why is my life the way that it is? Because of the choices that you have made. That's why your life is the way that it is. If you don't like the way that it looks, make better choices. And since we're incapable of making good choices, who should make them for you? The Word and the Spirit of God working together in unison. Yes. Joshua's warning the people about their future. The good news in this, and there is so much good news and more coming. You know whose hands your future is in? Yours. He lays promises out there. He allots a land for you. And then he says, you're numerous. Go out and take it. You can have as much as you want. I will bless you as much as you will walk in obedience. <laughs> if you weren't obedient yesterday, you can't do a thing about that. But you can sure change it starting right now. And what you do right now determines the kind of future you are going to have. That's incredible. It looks at, if I was the monarch of the universe, I wouldn't do that. I would say, you screwed me once, twice, you, you know, I'm going to burn you. You wouldn't like me. I'd be so unmerciful. I'd have to burn myself, though. See, God is holy. He, he's totally righteous. And he's totally loving. Those two things, they're hard to even mix in the same sentence, and yet they go totally together. Amen. You know what this means? 
He is constantly in positioning you to see your true state and cry out to him for change. And he will change you. Amen. Yes. But if you lost your legs in sin, when you get born again, it doesn't mean that your diabetes goes away and your legs regrow. It doesn't mean that. You might be irreversibly changing your life through disobedience to that. So don't. (laughs) Amen. Don't. That's a good word. Just instead be obedient. Right? One of the problems with preaching this uh, strange sloppy agape is people no longer fear sin. There's no fear of God and there's no fear of sin anymore. And they act like something strange happening to them when somebody goes to jail for murder. You know? (laughs) Yeah. Okay, so that's enough about that. Joshua's warning the people about their future. I want to tell you, your future is in your hands. Let's look at three New Testament passages that will instruct us on this that will go law, prophets, writings. Who wants the first one? It's an overwhelming choice. Lord, help me make a good one. Jacob, take uh, John 17, 14 through 17, and Sam, take Revelation 2, 6 through 7, and Steve, take uh, James 4, 4 through 5. (coughs) You're quiet because you're writing. Convicted or just mad? Both. <laughs> All three? All yes. Three. Yeah. John 17, 14-17. This is Jesus praying for you, by the way. I have given them your word, and the world has hated them. For they are not of the world, and I am of the world. Anybody got parents that hate you? Anybody got brothers and sisters who hate you? Yes. Yes. Anybody got neighbors who hate you? Yes. In the movies about Jesus, in the movies people make about Jesus, Jesus walks by and everybody's like, oh. No, they hated him. They hated him. And he says that they will hate you. Read it again, James. I have given them. I have given them your word, and the Lord has hated them. What? The Lord has hated them. When you receive a word from God, the world hates it. Why? Because it points to their lack of instruction from God. Yes. So the world hates the revelation people receive from God. They operate on a worldly plane, they operate in carnal wisdom. That is what they are. Jesus' own brothers hated him. His own mother said he was insane. King David was overlooked by his parents and hated by his brothers. Why do we expect everybody to love him? He said, but they're my family. Well, your family are damned sinners. So remind The good news is they can repent and get born again at any time. No, you don't understand. They think they already are. And so does everybody else. Mm -hmm. They've either received the word of God in a way that bears that fruit, or they're damned. That's true. That's true. You know, I find it very relieving to see where the lines actually are. Mm -hmm. It's harmful when you feel like people are supposed to be in the faith, 
You think they're in the faith, but they hate you. Hmm. The Spirit of Christ doesn't hate the Spirit of Christ. Amen. Amen. Right? Amen. Amen. The Spirit of Christ loves the Spirit of Christ. You know what our qualification for friendship is, according to Psalm 119? People who fear God. Amen. How do you know if a man fears God? By the way he acts. So if he acts like hell all of the time, then he doesn't fear God and he cannot be your friend. Even if it's your mama. Or your daddy. Listen. Or your adult children. Okay, what's our next one? Revelation 2, 6-7. through I'm sorry, Jacob. I did a terrible thing. For they're not of the world any more than I'm of the world. My prayer is not that you rapture them. <laughs> My prayer is not that you take them out of the world, but that you protect them from the evil one. They are not of the world, even wow. as I am not of the world. Sanctify them by your truth. Your word is truth. Amen. It is God's word that separates you from the world. And as the separation occurs, those who are supposed to be in Christ and are not will hate you for it. There is one reason that I am held in disdain by many. I will not yield about what the Word of God says. Amen. I'm going to take that as a badge of honor. Amen. And every once in a while, somebody that I would not yield to gets a revelation, and they call, and they repent. And this morning was one of those days. It's been a great day. Amen. You know what, though? I was grieving. Grieving over my condition with this person prior to the phone call. And now all I can think about is what if I had pansied out and I had caved in? Wow. Because most are ready to. Yeah. I mean, let's just keep the peace, right? Stand your ground on godly convictions or that lack of conviction is going to become a barb in your eye and a thorn in your sides. Cowardly, pansy Christians that never do what is difficult, they do only what they like, they avoid what they dislike, they stay in the popular crowd. Wow. Your day is coming. Wow. Okay, so who had our next passage? Revelation 2, 6-7. But you have this in your Goodness. favor. You hate the practices Shut of the Nicolaitans. Up. Jesus says it's in your favor to hate something? <laughs> <laughs> this is the church at Ephesus. Yeah. And the first word of praise that he has for them is that they hate something. They hate the work product, the life result, the ergo, the deeds of the Nicolaitans. Keep reading it. Which I also hate. <laughs> he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, I will give the right to eat from the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. Overcomes what? All the inhabitants of the land. And they got at least three different gods. And they hate you for receiving God's word. You can get people to unite over error any day. I mean, all you got to do is twist it a little bit and everybody loves it. But if you are standing on the truth, the world hates you for it. I've got news for you. Jesus says you were supposed to hate certain things, such as the practices of the Nicolaitans, which he says he also hates. Work on that for a little while. The Nicolaitans were not Satan worshippers. 
They were people who knew the truth and twisted it. Yeah. Mm. Okay. Who had our next passage? James 4, 4 through 5. You adulterous people, don't you know that friendship with the world means enmity of the world? <coughs> Therefore, anyone who chooses to be a friend of the world becomes an enemy of God. Or do you think Scripture says without reason that he jealously longs for the spirit he has caused to dwell in us? I would have heed Joshua's warning tonight. I don't want to be considered closer to the world than I am to, to the Lord. And I'm okay with the world considering me an enemy. I'm going to take their territory anyway. Um, this comes with a promise. I want you to know that very often we're scared to stand up to the world, the worldly Christian, the worldly wise man. We are scared that we don't have what it takes. That's why Joshua also said in Joshua 23.10 one of you routes a thousand because the Lord your God fights for you just as he promised so be very careful to love the Lord your God. You show love for the Lord by keeping the things that he has told you to do. That is loving him. He is with you when you were with him. You remember Joshua's encounter with uh, the commander of the Lord's host? Are you for us or our enemies? What was the answer? Neither. Neither. He is with you when you are with Him. him. So if you are with the Lord, loving the Lord, holding fast to the Lord, and you'll know if you are by whether or not you are doing what He told you to do, then you'll destroy the next thousand that come after you. And if you get a second person to stand with you, now you you destroy ten thousand. But if you say you're loving the Lord while you're not doing what He said, then you're going to get run over by the little imps, not even real demons. Okay? Mm. And you're going to look at your life and go, I don't know why it's this way. It must be somebody else's fault. And probably the people you'll hate the most are the ones that constantly run you into the reality that you're responsible for your condition. You'll probably find somebody who makes you feel better about yourself while you both go to hell. Let's move to the category of past blessings. Mm. Past blessings is a fun one. I like to look back at the sword that you cut the head off of Goliath with. Amen. Every once in a while, gaze upon the jawbone that you killed the thousand Philistines with but weren't allowed to keep because God wanted you to find a fresh <coughs> one every day. Every now and then to look back at the spot where you crossed the Red Sea so that you know that the same God who was with you then will help you do what he has said now. You ready? Yes. You could summarize Joshua 24, 1 through 13 in this list of seven. Matthew? Yes. <laughs> that way I don't have to read it all. You have been delivered from Terah's idolatry. You're not Terah's son. Whose son are you? Abraham's. I'm summarizing only in order the seven things that Joshua reminds them of in these passages. You were delivered from Terah's idolatry. You were were given promised sons. You were brought out of Egypt. God said that he put darkness between you and Egypt's armies and then destroyed them in the sea for you. He said, I delivered you from the Amorites who attacked you. Which is interesting, because I kind of thought they attacked the Amorites, but that's not how God saw it. Hmm. (laughs) I delivered you 
from Balaam's error and turned his curses into blessings. Wasn't that kind of funny when you're reading Joshua 24? He yeah. says, again and again, and I made it a blessing for you. <laughs> okay, I liked it more than you did. <laughs> the seventh one. I defeated seven nations, starting with the city of Jericho. He literally lists seven nations that were bigger and more powerful than Israel, seven nations that had giants, and said, I beat them all for you. It wasn't your bow, it was mine. Yes. And in the face of those seven things that Joshua reminds them God did for them, he summarized his findings <coughs> with this sentence. So I gave you land on which you did not toil, and cities you did not build, and you live in them and eat from vineyards and olive groves that you did not plant. In other words, you were enjoying all the fruits of something that you were not capable of and didn't do. I did it as you trusted me. You know, Joshua's prophetic reminder drew my attention to the Gospel of John. Who wants to read that? JJ. <laughs> Sorry, son. JJ was fast with his hand. He has an attractive beard. Yeah. That's true. John 4, 34 through 38. My food, says Jesus, is to do the will of him who sent me and to finish his work. Amen. Do you not say four months more and then a harvest? I tell you, open your eyes and look at the fields. They are ripe for harvest. Even now the reaper draws his wages. Even now he harvests the crop for eternal life, so that the sower and the reaper may be glad together. Thus the saying, one sows and another reaps his fruit. I sent you to reap what you have not worked for. What? Ooh. Hello. to reap what you have not worked for. Others. Others have done the hard work, and you have reaped the benefits of their labor. Wow. You hear how similar what Jesus is saying is to what Joshua said? Wow. They're both pointing at something. We've not earned any of the blessings that are bestowed on us. And if we tried, we couldn't earn them. We were chosen to glorify the Lord in our weakness and in His strength. What pleases the Lord is dependency on Him. He sent out 12 scared Jewish boys to go save the world. That's a strange plan, but it's no stranger than taking 12 tribes and marching around the city with not one weapon among them. You know, he does this for a reason. He wants you to see that the city that you now live in is not the work product of your brilliance. It's the result of faithfulness, trusting him. Yeah. And I'm a little disgusted in the Word of Faith movement and the prosperity movement to see people try to turn faithfulness into a work product. Yeah. Mm. I have this card because I tithe. No, you have it because you're an idolatrous toad. Yeah. That's why you have it. Yeah. Fleshly mutant, you know. should be an X-Man or something. <laughs> your power is grieving the Holy Ghost. The, uh, the attitude that we're supposed to have is we are unworthy servants who have only done what was asked. Yeah. All of the benefit that comes, comes because it was his bow that did it. Yeah. See, otherwise you start looking at the wrong side of Jordan saying, this is a good place for cattle. Uh-oh. And we have cattle. 
I think, Lord, you can see that we are going to stay here. Oh, when you lean on your own arm, it always brings a curse. Yeah. Okay. Jesus is reminding the apostles, at the time that we're seeing a Samaritan harvest, you guys sure didn't care about the Samaritans. Mm-hmm. You sure weren't working for the salvation of the Samaritans. You are walking into what was prepared for you in advance by my Father. All you're doing is discovering the blessing that comes from obedience. Amen. When people act like their revelation is the result of their great hard work and they sacrificed for this anointing, and if you want this kind of anointing, you have to work as hard as I did. They are fleshly codes. Mm. That's a good one. You only have good things that were prepared for you in advance that you get to discover as you walk. Is it is it hard work? Of course it is. But none of the benefits are the result of your hard work. That's true. And what makes it hard is your own sinful nature. So the harder it is, <laughs> let's just be honest, is because you're carnal. Hmm. <coughs> Alright. Uh, Matthew 11. Who's going to read it? Spence, take Matthew 11, 25-30. And Nolan, take Revelation 13, 7 through 10. <coughs> and Justin, take 1 Corinthians 26 through 28. I'll pick up the pace a little bit because there's a few. Um, Jim's. Yes. Jim. Matthew eleven twenty-five through 30. At the time, Jesus said, I praise you, Father. Lord of heaven and earth, because you have hidden these things from the wise and learned and revealed them to little children. Who gets revealed to? Little children. children. Who are things hidden from? Wise and learned. So why does every pastor put on the back of the book that he's selling you pictures of him at a presidential desk in a giant library? Because he's a toad, that's why. Okay, let's move to our next one. Revelation 13, 7-10. Should have put a picture of him with a dunce hat sitting in the kindergarten corner. better. <coughs> yes. He was given power to make war against the saints and to conquer them. And he was given authority over every tribe, people, language, and nation. All inhabitants of the earth will worship the beast. All whose names have not been written in the book of life belonging to the lamb that was slain from the creation of the world. He who has an ear, let him hear. If anyone is to go into captivity, into captivity he will go. If anyone is to be killed with the sword, with the sword he will be killed. This calls for patient endurance and faithfulness on the part of the saints. It doesn't call for the rapture of the saints. It calls for the endurance of the saints. Amen. It doesn't call for the exaltation of the saints. It calls for the endurance of the saints. Amen. Our role is patient endurance, faithfulness to God's promises. We're going to boil it down to simply fear God and be faithful to Him. And when you do those two things, everything else works out right. Uh, 1 Corinthians. 1 Corinthians 1, 26-28. Brothers, think of what you were when you were called. Not many of you were wise by human standards. Not many were influential. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. He chose the lowly things of this world and the despised things. Deuteronomy says that he chose Israel because they were the fewest. They were pathetic. Corinthians makes the point that he chose you because you were pathetic. That he chose me because I was pathetic. When you consider where he has brought you to, 
what he has given you, that you have become a son and daughter of God, <coughs> a daughter with the rights of a son. When you consider that he reveals to you from heaven, that he gives you his identity, how could that do anything when you're looking at those past blessings except carry you into present responsibility? Yes. When you realize what he has done for you, you ought to want to do for him. Yes. yes. That's why Joshua starts in the future. He then goes to the past to zero in on their present responsibility. And that's where we're going to go next. Amen. Okay. Amen. Judah, read Joshua 24:14. Uh, Gabriel, read Matthew 25:23. Gabriel Stevens. Um <clears throat> Rob, read Revelation seventeen fourteen, <coughs> and Kylie, read First Corinthians four, one through three. What you're seeing, by the way, is a principle from Joshua, followed by law, prophets, writings, and that's been my pattern all night. Joshua twenty four fourteen. Now fear the Lord and serve Him with all faithfulness. Throw away the gods your forefathers worshipped beyond the river in Egypt and serve the Lord. I know that uh, I don't speak like a pastor, don't look like a pastor. I, I know all of those things, so you're not going to like this much either. This pisses me off. This verse. Fear God, serve Him in faithfulness. And then what's the next phrase? Throw away your idols. You mean they still had idols? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And so do you. So do you. Every time you think you're completely rid of them, you're going to find more, okay? But that's not an excuse to stop throwing them away. I mean, it is a lifelong pursuit. And when I got angry reading this verse, I knew I had to look a little closer at my life. I knew that. I mean, that's one of the drawbacks to preaching all of the time, is I can hear my own voice in my head. I'm actually mad at them. You still have foreign gods, and I realize that I'm feeling what God feels about it, but it's as true of me as it is then. Okay. So I want to talk a little bit about identifying those gods and serving God under two principles. That you actually fear Him. We've lost that. I don't know why. I loved my father. I saw no conflict, with my stepfather I'm speaking on, no conflict between fearing Him and loving Him. I wanted His affection. I knew His affection was for me. I loved him more than anybody else, and I was legitimately scared of him, and I wasn't the police. It saved my life. It is a modern invention that you cannot fear and love, and that when God says fear, he doesn't mean fear. What a load of crap. He means fear. I mean, look at how he dealt with the prophets and tell me he didn't mean fear. He means fear him. You should fear a righteous God when you're doing wrong. Yeah. And you should be comforted by his love when you're striving to do what's right. I mean, that's... that's a good okay, word. so Amen. now let's yeah. move through our passages. So let's get to Matthew 25, 23. His master replied, Well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful with a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. Come, share in your master's happiness. See, it makes him happy when you fear him and you serve him faithfully. But you needn't go very far in this passage. And you'll, you'll see what happens to those that did not grow their inheritance. And they tell you why. They had idols. What were the idols? I was scared. Uh, God, it's your fault. I, I know what kind of God you are. 
Hmm. I mean, really, that's a bad defense. Yeah. But that was pretty much the defense of the French Jordan tribes, too. <clears throat> so it's human nature. It's human nature to say, I, uh, I don't want to do this. Let me find any reason not to. Yeah. And it's somebody else's fault. You either are or you're not doing the last thing he told you to do. Mm-hmm. Right. And listen, doubling down on a bad idea, you know, he already showed you it wasn't right, so you're going to repeat the process? I mean, really? I mean, it, it, that, that, that's right up there with insane. Yeah. Okay? Go back to the last thing that you're positive. Positive. Not fanciful. Positive. He showed you in a scripture, and he showed you through his spirit, and the two witness. Right? Because misconceptions about him speaking to you have caused a lot of Christians to be unhappy with their good life, wanting the life they don't have. Alright? Um, go back to what he said. Most errors in my life have been to what I added to what he said. Mm-hmm. Or my image of what he said. The way, yeah. Can I tell you, he told me I would be doing exactly what I'm doing now in 1993, but I did not picture anything like this. Truthfully, it was much more glorious than this. <laughs> it was a whole lot easier than this. Yeah. Mm. And a lot more rewarding than this (laughs) to an 18 year old carnal toad (laughs) the more I'm in love with the Lord the more I'm in love with the ordinary humble life with extraordinary relationships miracles and revelation amen amen Amen. everybody we're the football Um, (laughs) praise Jesus it's very very easy to say it's all for the Lord while you're making a worship video okay but why in the H-E-double-L would you make a worship video let's just start there it's all about the Lord but I need to make sure that you see me your worship video should probably be a, a black screen with you on the other side of it it's all for the Lord as long as I'm the one speaking it's all for the Lord as long as I'm the one that laid my hands on them. We hide idolatry from ourselves. It's so, so, so sad. And it's always easier to see in the rearview mirror than in the moment that you're doing it. That's why you need people around you that are helping you. They don't hate you. They love you enough to tell you. And I'm only saying that because my intentions in my life many times have been as pure in my own eyes as they could be. And I can look now and go, yeah, there was so much flesh in that. Why couldn't I see it then? Wow. Okay. The Word of God will show you in a more mature fashion what you really are. That's why the number one problem that we have when we read the Word is that we apply it to others. That's, yeah. that's the devil's deflection. Mm. Apply it to you yeah. and watch what it does. Yeah. Okay. Praise God. Uh, I love you. That's why I'm telling you this. And it, uh, listen, I don't know of a person in this room making a worship video, okay? It's just, it's a really good example. And if you make one in a white tank top with cameras at every angle and no ugly people in it, then let's just say what you're doing, okay? Because we know what you are. I mean, it's the most... Okay, let's, let's move on. Uh, so to help me move on, somebody's got Revelation 17, 14. 17, 14. They will make war against the Lamb, but the Lamb will overcome them because He is the Lord of Lords and King of Kings. And with Him will be His called, chosen and faithful followers. Amen. The Lamb wins. 
He wins, but who does he win with? Called chosen They have to be called. Among the called, they have to be chosen, and they have to be faithful to what they were called to and chosen for. See, lots of people are called and chosen, but they're not faithful to what they were called for and chosen for. We act like we're saved and we get to pick our place. Mm. I I haven't even gotten... I am thrilled to death with every part of my life and almost no book. Jennifer's the only thing in it that I would have picked. Everything else has been a surprise how amazing it is. Amen. It was not my choice. Wow. Does that make sense? I mean, you need to be careful that you are faithful to what he called you for and out of the calling what he chose you for. If I was Matthew, I wouldn't have chosen to work with me. And he didn't. Jesus chose it. Amen. Uh, if I was Wade, I, I never would have left Austin. I wouldn't. <laughs> I might not have been exactly in all the same places in Austin. But the thing is, he didn't choose that. The Lord chose that for him. And then he has to be, choose whether he's faithful to what the Lord. It really is about a choice. And that's what Joshua's going to boil down to. It's very simple choices. And they become complicated when you don't want to do them. Yeah. That's what complicates them when you don't wow. want to do what the Lord has said to do. That's good. Let's let's take our next uh, passage. First Corinthians four one through eleven or three. So then, men ought to regard us as servants of Christ and as those entrusted with the secret things of God. Now it is required that those who have been given a trust must prove faithful. I care very little if I am judged by you or by any human court. Indeed, I do not even judge myself. See. So we want no idols, no timidity, no temptation, no tolerance. We are at war and we need to be faithful. But on this side of this verse, we want to fear the Lord. We want to rid ourselves of idols. We want to prove our faithfulness. I would say that Jesus has nothing left to prove to us, but we have a lot left to prove to him. The reason Joshua is saying this while he's old and well advanced in years is because... He has fought the good fight, and he has finished the race. Now he's telling them how to do it. Does that make sense? Yeah. Yes. If you compare Joshua's words with Paul's to the Ephesian elders and Moses to Israel, there's some very interesting parallels, but we wouldn't finish before midnight. I want to start with the idea that there is no neutrality in the book of Joshua. You can be ambivalent. You can be apathetic. You can just not care that much. But the book of Joshua draws a very clear distinction. There's no room for somebody who is neutral in these things. Say, well, I just don't feel that strongly about it. Well, repent. Repent. This is the passionate appeal of a man who's about to go face God. And he knows you're about to. And so he is leaving no room. Paul did the same thing. Moses did the same thing. So in addressing them at Shechem, Y'all remember that chapter 24, verse 1 said he was at Shechem? Yes. Here's seven reasons. Yeah. Seven reasons that he's at Shechem. I mean, I know everybody here knows exactly what happened at Shechem, and there's no reason for me to put this list up, but it was at Shechem that God promised Abraham that his descendants would inherit the land. He said, it's to your offspring that I'll give this land. The Bible specifically says that was at Shechem. When Jacob built an altar, Eloi Elohim, he uh, he did it at Shechem 
And it was when he was delivered of his fear of Isaac. It was here that God told them to rid themselves of foreign gods in Jacob's day. You read Genesis 35, verses 2 through 4, and you find out that they buried those idols under a tree at Shechem. Yeah, yeah it's not hitting you yet. Yeah. A lot of stuff buried under a tree okay. at Shechem. There's a book of the law buried there. There's a lot of things. There's a stone there. But uh, he's gone to a place where the people of God had had to repent before and get rid of their idols. And his message to them is get rid of your idols. Amen. That's interesting, don't you think? Joshua would commit the people to their position at Shechem. Uh, Here Joshua deposited the book of the law. Here Joshua put a stone of remembrance. And it's here that Joseph's bones were buried at Shechem. I was getting kind of excited about that. I had written down to tell you to stand on the promise of God to build an altar to defeated fears, to purify your house, to pick your position, to preserve the law, to solidify your remembrance, and to stack the promise of the resurrection on top of it all. That's better than you think it is. There's a lot at Shechem. And when you look at the layers, you might be in one of them. Joshua is a book about choices. He chose to pick 12 chosen men in Exodus 17 and fight the Amalekites. Uh, Moses told him to do it, but he didn't have to obey. He could have said, you know, I'd rather go hang out with the candied apple Christians. He chose to stand against the people at the golden calf. You know, he didn't have to side with the Levites and side with Moses, but he did. He chose to stand with Caleb in the Kadesh Barnea decision. Just two men against an entire nation. Joshua knew what it was to make hard choices. So he's going to frame these choices for the people. He understood choice, and the book of Joshua is about choice. Here are ten choices in ten chapters. You ready? They chose to enter the land. He would have done it 38 years before them, but he chose to be faithful even when they weren't. And to work with an unfaithful mob for 38 years, that was a choice. Would you have made that choice? Would you have given 38 years of your life to people who are going to die anyway? He did. Rahab, in the second chapter, chose the people of God over her own family. Man, that's a big theme in here, isn't it? In the third chapter, Israel chose to, to cross the Jordan... And they left two kinds of memorials there. In the fourth chapter, they chose to be circumcised in obedience, something that the generation had not done. In the fifth chapter, they chose to obey the captain of the host. In the sixth chapter, they chose to execute the Jericho plan over their own fears. Can you imagine how hard that must have been? In the seventh chapter, we see an example of Achan's dismal choice at odd. But in the 8th chapter, we see Joshua choose to turn defeat into a victory. Amen. In the ninth chapter, the Gibeonites chose to join the people of God. <laughs> in the 10th chapter, Joshua chooses to honor his commitment to the Gibeonites, leading to the battle of Beth Horon that foreshadows the book of Revelation. The book of Joshua 
is about choices. Yes. So it's natural that he brings the people to a place where they must choose. He demands a choice for the people. We can do these together. Numbers 24, I'm sorry, Joshua 24, 15 through 18. We can put it on the screen. We'll read them together. It's very late. Besides, it's about to get good. It's been good. But if serving the Lord seems undesirable to you, then choose for yourself this day whom you will serve, whether the gods of your forefathers served beyond the river or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you are living. But as for me and my household, we will serve the Lord. For Joshua, the die has already been cast. The line's already been drawn. He has fought his fight. He's at the end of his life and he's telling them, your choices will produce a life you're either proud of or a life that you're not proud of and the choice is your choice. Their response, the people answered, far be it from us to forsake the Lord to serve other gods. Lying toads, they already were serving other gods. It was the Lord, our God himself, who brought us and our fathers up out of Egypt from that land of slavery and performed those great signs before our eyes. He protected us on our entire journey and among all the nations through which we traveled. And the Lord drove out before us all the nations, including the Amorites who lived in the land. We, too, will serve the Lord. He is our God. Would you say this is profession of faith number one? Clearly presented. Clearly responded to. Not good enough. Joshua in Joshua 24, 19 says, Joshua said to the people, you are not able to serve the Lord. He is a holy God. He is a jealous God. He will not forgive your rebellion and your sins. He would be, listen, Joshua would be run out of the church world today. Not allowed on Charisma Magazine. Not allowed on TBM. Not allowed in the Compact Center. Not allowed at Second Baptist. Not allowed in any of the covens of carnality that are masquerading as churches right now. Because he's honest about their condition. And he does not let them get away with mere profession of faith. It's not okay for them to say they're following the Lord and not address their true condition. If you forsake the Lord and serve foreign gods, he will turn and bring disaster on you and make an end of you after he has been good to you. Is he promising them help in this life and heaven in the next? No. Or is he giving them the stark reality that it's easy to promise, but if you don't carry through with devotion, he is going to destroy you. When have you ever heard altar calls like this? But the people said to Joshua, No, we will serve the Lord. (laughs) That was their second profession of faith, wouldn't you say? Here comes number three. Then Joshua said, You are witnesses against yourself that you have chosen to serve the Lord. Yes, we are witnesses, they replied. I would say three times now they have said they're serving the Lord. Is that how you're counting it? That takes us to Joshua 24, verse 23. 
Now then, said Joshua, throw away the foreign gods that are among you and yield your hearts to the Lord, the God of Israel. He didn't accept their first profession of faith, their second profession of faith, or their third. But by the third, he gave them an action in his fourth response that would show the fruit of salvation. You really want to serve the Lord? You're not able. You really want to serve the Lord? You can't do it. You really want to serve the Lord? Yes, we really want to serve the Lord. If you want to serve the Lord, throw away your foreign gods and yield your hearts. And the people said to Joshua, we will serve the Lord our God and obey him. Notice they had to affirm their choice three times before they were taken seriously. And on the fourth time, Joshua accepted their word. Why do you think they went through that? Well, the same reason that Jesus restored Peter three times. The same reason that we have a Torah and Nevim and a Ketuvim. He is addressing fully, completely, every part of them. Because he knows in their hearts they want to. He knows in their minds they think that it's the right thing to do. He knows that they're promising that with their flesh they're going to do it. But until he sees them tossing out some foreign gods, he doesn't accept that it's actually happening. Do you really think he didn't want them to serve God? What would be the point of coming into the promised land, all those things, if they don't? I know. Wow. But he cares more about if they really will than if they say they will. Joshua would have been a great pastor. (coughs) A great pastor. I wish that there were more men like him in this world. Luther at the Diet of Worms in 1521 was given the opportunity to recant his 95 theses. I don't like this guy, but I have to admire this. I cannot and will not recant anything, for to go against conscience is neither right nor safe. Here I stand, I can do no other, so help me God. Amen. Mm. Listen. You're either standing with the Lord because you can do no other, or you've been persuaded, and it's a very negotiable thing. You'll do it when it's easy and won't do it when it's hard. You'll do it as you see fit, just like the book of Judges, and your life will look like the book of Judges. You either have thrown away everything, and all you have is the Lord, or you don't have the Lord at all. It's very much an all-or-nothing thing. And every time you find something that is in conflict with the Lord, you get to decide again whether you'll follow Him. We are saved in the past, we are being saved now, and we will be saved in the future. So, well, what about security? Security comes from knowing that if you do what He says to do, you're accepted. Amen. You also have the security of knowing that even a righteous man that turns from his righteousness and does wicked things, not one righteous thing you ever did will be remembered. You have that security. So when we talk about eternal security, oh, I understand it completely, do you? Most people that I know that are clinging to those kind of worthless security blanket doctrines are doing it because they have foreign gods. I don't even want to go to how... Rachel and Leah hid those. 
Tuck them away in the most obscene places in your life so that it would take an extraordinary prophet and an aggressive man of God just to reveal what you've hidden. When your obligation is to read the prophets, them reveal it, and you come and say, I'm throwing away my gods. And they're buried in the same hole that you put the Bible on top of and the resurrected bones on top of that. See, it all happens at Shechem. Because it's your testimony. It's the layers of your testimony. And there is no testimony if there are no foreign gods underneath your Bible. The testimony is that the word of God was victorious over every other thing you trusted in. The testimony is the hope of the resurrection stands on top. Not as a tombstone saying he's dead here, but saying the one who died here will come back to life. Amen. Okay? No buried idols, no altars to defeated fear, no forefathers that also turned from their idolatrous ways. Well, you have no testimony. You're playing games with God, and you will live with your choice. Where do you stand tonight? The book of Joshua closes in the most unusual way. I think we are to read it. It will help you. So read to me Joshua 24 and begin in uh, verse 28. Then Joshua sent the people away, each to his own inheritance. After these things, Joshua, son of Nun, the servant of the Lord, died at the age of 110. And they buried him in the land of his inheritance at Timnath, Sarah. Joshua died and was what? Buried. Buried. I've been telling you all night that Joshua is a prophet. Keep going. Uh, in the hill country of Ephraim, north of Mount Gaiash, Israel served the Lord throughout the lifetime of Joshua and of the elders who outlived him and who had experienced everything the Lord had done for Israel. And Joseph's bones, which the Israelites had brought up from Egypt, were buried at Shechem in the tract of land that Jacob brought, bought for a hundred pieces of silver. Hold there. Joshua was buried, and Amen. Joshua was a prophet. Joseph is now being buried 500 years after he died. What was Joseph's last job description? King. Keep going. The father of Shechem. This became the inheritance of Joseph's descendants. And Eleazar, son of Aaron, died and was buried at Gibeah. Eleazar is buried and he's a priest. The book of Joshua closes with the death of the prophet, the priest, and the king. Because you now have the finished testimony of the prophet, the priest, and the king who finished their work. They arrived in the land of promise. They were buried in the land of promise in the hopes of the resurrection. And that promise is supposed to compel you to fight the good fight and finish the race just like they have. Amen. That's so good. I had planned to read Hebrews 2. Let me give it to you as your homework. It's 10 o'clock. In Hebrews 2, beginning in the fourth verse, we have 
signs, wonders, miracles, and gifts of the Holy Spirit, testifying to salvation. As you slide down that chapter and you read, you see that everything in the world is subject to Jesus. But at the present, we don't see everything subject to Jesus. We just see Jesus. Point of reading Hebrews 2 is what is man that you are mindful of him, the son of man that you would subject the world to come to him. Well, in the book of Joshua, we see what it is when a faithful prophet carries out his work, a faithful king carries out his work, and a faithful priest do. And they're going to rise in that land of promise. Amen. And you will too if you bury the same things that Shechem they did. Mm. And it starts with your fear. It moves to your idols. Stacked on top of all of that, it's the book of the law and the bones of resurrection. Amen. What is buried in your promised land? What has completed its work? Because we have to get all the way to the personage of Jesus to see a prophet, priest, and king die, buried, and come back to life. And it's how the book of Joshua closes. Our study is now over. And what I'm hoping that the book, the first in the Naveen does, is point to the choices that you have to make. I'm hoping that it points to your life as the sum total of your choice. I'm hoping that you understand saying it is not the same as doing it, not even if you say it three times. <coughs> it's when you start throwing out your foreign gods that Yeshua will accept your profession of faith. So how does that sit with your soul? Are you the woman that attended synagogue for 17 years, crippled by an evil spirit? You have idols in your heart, idols in your life. Secret idols that you've been sitting on that we would have to embarrass you just to draw attention to them. Because the book of Joshua was supposed to purify the land. And if you don't purify the land, he does to you what you were supposed to do to the idols. He throws you out. Of course, if you throw out the idols, you not only get to stay in the land, you're going to resurrect there, along with the prophets, the priests, and the kings. It's not a small thing to be in the number of prophets, priests, and kings. It actually requires wholehearted, complete devotion. There's no room for partial Christians. We have tolerance for someone who is throwing out all the idols they know of and just hasn't discovered the ones we can see. That's the only way that you can be a partial Christian. That's called immature. But there's no room in the kingdom for the choice to not obey the Lord and still think you're in the kingdom. You need to deal with that. Deal with it honestly. Because when you can answer the question, come hell or high water, whether the whole world stands against you, your mother and father turn their back on you, you are so excited to be in the company of even the bones of the prophets, priests, and kings. Amen. 
that all you want to do is seal your testimony like theirs. That's all you want to do. I pray that you seal your testimony. It's done with every idol that you throw down the hole and put under the Word of God. It's done every time. Shechem was a place of decision. Hamor was led by his son. Shechem. Shechem was led by his cardiovascular system. (laughs) They're going to be there and resurrect, but it won't be the resurrection of the righteous. The world is so divided by our choices. I pray today you choose the Lord. Because it's going to determine what your future looks like. And it's entirely up to you. If you don't like what you've been getting, maybe you need to make different choices. Stand to your feet.